Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Luke chapter 8 now. In our last audio, we covered Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. This was the story of the sinful woman who anointed Jesus' feet in the house of Simon the Pharisee. Now, when we get to chapter 8, we're going to introduce Jesus going back to Capernaum and starting his second Galilean tour. The NIV Study Bible distinguishes the two tours by saying the first tour of Galilee was in the synagogues, and I'll take you through that and show you the verses that show that. And then the second tour here is preaching in the towns and the countryside of Galilee. Then we are going to take up some of the events on the so-called busy day, as Robertson calls it. There were six events on this busy day. First, Jesus was accused of being in league with Beelzebul. Second, the scribes and Pharisees demand a sign, and Jesus gives them the sign of Jonah. Those two events are not recorded in Luke. The third event on the busy day, which is recorded, and we're going to cover this, is when, excuse me, we're going to cover it in the next audio, not this one, is when Jesus' family, his mother and brothers, think he's crazy and try to take him away from misery back down to Nazareth. That's the third event. The fourth event on the busy day is the teaching of a, the, the so-called first great group of parables, as Robertson calls it. There's about eight. Some people say seven. depends on how you count them. But a group of parables uh, from the boat. And we're going to take up one of those parables in this audio, the parable of the sower. The fifth event on the so-called busy day is Jesus stealing the, stilling the tempest when he stilled the storm. And the sixth event on the busy day is the healing of the garrison demoniac. That indeed was a busy day. In this audio, to summarize, I'm going to introduce us to the second tour of Galilee in the first four verses of Luke 8, and then we're going to take up the parable of the sore in Luke 8, 5 through 18. Now, the parable of the sore is more deeply discussed, more thoroughly discussed in Matthew 13, 3 through 23, so I'm going to splice my audio for Matthew into this audio when we get there. But first, let's start with Luke 8, verse 1, and we'll introduce the, we will introduce the second tour of Galilee. Luke 8, verse 1. Soon afterward, he was traveling from one town and village to another, preaching and telling the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. Now, he said afterward he was traveling. After what? Here's some of the stuff that Jesus had done earlier. He had healed the centurion servant in Capernaum. That's in Luke 7. He raised the widow of Nain's son in Luke 7. I think I think the healing of the centurion servant at Capernaum was in Luke 7. I might have forgotten that, but it was recently. He raised the widow of Nain's son. He said many things in commendation of John the Baptist, and he protected the prostitute in Simon the Pharisee's house. That was in Luke 7. All these are mostly recorded in Luke in the previous chapters, which, which, was, which we have already covered. Now, it says in Luke 8, 1, soon afterward, he was traveling from one town and village. And that's a key phrase there because it distinguishes the first tour, the first uh, first of Jesus' ministry activities from the earlier ones. I should say it distinguished Jesus' first tour of Galilee from his second tour. The NIV Study Bible points this out. Before Jesus' ministry had been centered in Capernaum, and much of the preaching was in the synagogue and the synagogues around Capernaum. But now he's traveling around the countryside on his second tour of the Galilean countryside. So here's the NIV study Bible giving us scriptures telling us about his first tour. Notice it mentions synagogues, Luke 4, verses 43 through 44. Well, let's just look at verse 44. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee, Matthew 4, 23 through 25. We'll just read verse 23. Jesus was going all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. Mark 1, 38 through 39, verse 39. So he went into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues. So that was before. Now, in Luke 8, 1, it says Jesus was traveling from one town and village to another. So he's branched out from Capernaum, and he's now going all over Galilee. Now we go down to Luke 8, verse 2. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses, also meaning also traveling with them in addition to the twelve, the twelve apostles who have already been appointed by now. And with those twelve apostles, some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses, they were traveling also. Mary called Magdalene. Seven demons had come out of her. And that's how Mary is always identified as the, from Magdala, 
from Magadan, as sometimes it's called, which was a city on the, well, actually, some people say it's the same city. Uh, my map here, atlas.org, bibleatlas.org map, has the two towns separated out, Magdala being on the western coast of the Sea of Galilee at its westernmost protrusion, and Magadan being a little bit further up the coast toward the northeast. Wherever, it was that general area where she was from. It was famous for having prostitutes, and so she's gotten called a prostitute with absolutely no evidence, and we're not going to call her a prostitute. However, she did have seven demons who had come out of her, Luke says. Mark is more specific, and it says that it was Jesus who had cast those demons out, Mark 16, 9. Early on the first day of the week, after he had risen, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. Well, let's talk about Mary Magdalene. First of all, she should not be confused with the sinful woman in Simon the Pharisee's house. That sinful woman was probably a, a prostitute, it doesn't say, and it definitely doesn't say that that woman was Mary Magdalene. She's definitely not Mary of Bethany, who was never accused of having seven demons or being a prostitute. That was Lazarus, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Martha and Lazarus' sister living, who lived in Bethany, where Jesus stayed there during Passion Week. Some say she was a widow and thus had the leisure to follow Christ. Jerome said that, well, maybe, maybe not. Many have thought her to be a prostitute before her conversion, Adam Clark says, as I've mentioned, but nowhere in the New Testament can be used to show this. Now, here's a good quote from Adam Clark. Poor Mary Magdalene is made the patroness of penitent prostitutes, both by Papists and Protestants. And to the scandal of her name and the reproach of the gospel, houses fitted up for the reception of such are termed Magdalene Hospitals and the person themselves, Magdalene's. In other words, fallen women who are taken in by Christian charities to help them have their babies and such and so forth, <laughs> they're called Magdalene hospitals, hospitals for prostitutes. And the people themselves are called prostitutes or fallen women. Well, that's bad when you die. It's like Ty Cobb. You know, you get a bad press right before you die. Sometimes you get a bad reputation that follows you posthumously. It's not logical to say she was a prostitute. Jesus, as Adam Clark points out, Jesus would never have allowed a converted prostitute to travel with him because that would have brought so much obloquy on Jesus it would destroy his mission. Now, another, another possible reason why people associated Mary of Magdala with prostitution is because she was demon-possessed and there was a common idea that prostitutes were especially demon-possessed, which might have been true, I don't know. But at any rate, it never says that Mary was Mary of Magdalene, Mary Magdalene, Mary of Magdala was a prostitute. It never says that. Now, along with those women, and you notice the reason they were following him, they've been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. I'm telling you, too much, to whom much has been given, there's much love, as Jesus said in another parable, the parable of the two debtors. He who has been forgiven much loves much, and he who has been healed much loves much too. Although he didn't say that, I'm saying that. Get a demon cast out of you, and all the horrible effects washed away and your sickness is healed, yeah, you're gonna follow you're gonna to want to follow Jesus. And these women were following Jesus. Now notice it says these women's these women were healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. That tends to show that demon demon possession and sicknesses were two different things. Many people I think back then and even today they equate demon possession and sicknesses to say that if you're sick you got a demon. Well that's not true. Or if you got a demon, you're automatically physical sick, physically sick. That's not true either. Demons can mess with your mind as well as your body. So the two are not. It's like scribes and Pharisees. You draw the two little Venn diagram circles. A lot of evil spirits cause sicknesses, and a lot of sicknesses were caused by evil spirits. But not all evil spirits were sicknesses, and not all sicknesses were caused by evil spirits. We drop down now to verse Oh, look, before I leave this verse, notice that the women were traveling with these men. Well, now, you would think that back then in that conservative society, which was unlike American society, that people would think, oh, yeah, all the apostles got all those women traveling with them. They're, on, they're traveling out there in the op on the open road, and they stop in these scandalous-type inns and hotels, and I bet there's a little bit of hanky-panky going on. There was never a hint of that, never a bit of scandal which is really amazing. That could be because I'm an American. As soon as a single man is seen with a single woman in any context, the tongues start wagging, and that's because there's no sexual morality here, and everybody's fornicating with everybody else and, and talking about how wonderful it is and talking about their experience and putting it on social media and getting articles written about it so we can read it on, on Fox News. But there was no scandal. Luke 8, verse 3. 
this is listing some of the women, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod Stewart, Susanna, and many others who were supporting them from their possessions. Now, this woman, Susanna, nothing more is known of her. She is totally unknown to history. She was traveling with the apostles. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod Stewart, that's Herod Antipas, who is labeled by Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown as a godless, cruel, and licentious wretch. Yeah, he chopped off John the Baptist's head because his stepdaughter Salome did a sexy dance, and so he killed John the Baptist, and he'd done some other bad stuff too, so he was not the nicest guy. So it's interesting that this Herod Antipas had a steward whose wife got saved right there in the, the corridors of power. We've got Christianity seeping in there. Notice that these women, there were other women too, who were supporting them from their possessions. That's how the apostles were able to travel around. They had women supporting them out of their money. And I suppose the women's husbands didn't care, or maybe they would have, but, I, you know, people weren't rich back then. These women chipped in, and if it wasn't for them, the apostles wouldn't have been able to do their work, and Jesus wouldn't have been able to teach all these wonderful parables and do all these great miracles, because he had to eat, just like everybody else. So that's something we need to give these, the people behind the scenes need to get credit, because nothing ever happens without people behind the scenes, the nobodies. Oh, and I should mention here, people always point out, especially these feminist types, you know, about how wonderful women are. Well, of course they're wonderful. That's not the point. Yes, they're wonderful. But I, the point is, as a matter of authority, where were the women in the Twelve Apostles? The women played a support role. That doesn't mean they were less valuable. We need to honor the women. We need to give them all kinds of kudos for their support role, just like a wife needs to get all kinds of credit. Every good husband will know that he can do nothing without his wife, that his wife supports him holds him up, gets him through his hard times, does all those wonderful things that wives do, and they never get credit for it. And feminists sure don't give them credit for it because what they say is, well, you're just putting her down because all she is is a helper. She's not out there swinging through the corporate jungles on a, on, on, on a vine. She, 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 she's, she doesn't make any money. She, she's not a big shot corporate executive. She's not flying an airplane. She's just a lowly housewife. My attitude toward feminists, as you might imagine, is not, how can I say this? It's not the best. We go to Luke 8, 4, and we'll, I'll just read 8, 4. As a large crowd was gathering, and people were flocking to him from every town, he said the parable. Now, these are, this, is, this is the first parable of those seven or eight parables he's going to get from the boat. He pushed out at Capernaum there. Uh, to, he had to teach from the boat. His voice would bounce off the lake so they could all hear. He had to get away from the crowd because they were crowding him out. So now we're going to take up the parable of the sword. I'm going to give a little, a few introductory remarks before I splice in my audio from Matthew 13. From this point on, right here, Jesus uses mainly parables to teach. So this is the rise of the parable right here. This is according to the NIV Study Bible. Why were parables effective according to the NIV Study Bible? Because they were easy to remember. They used familiar, familiar scenes. They clarified Jesus' teaching. They included hidden meanings, which encouraged seekers to seek for more meaning. They taught truths that Jesus wanted to conceal from unbelievers. Jesus didn't want his enemies to find a direct statement they could use against him to testify against him, so he taught in parables, which I thought was pretty clever if you think about it. The Synoptic Gospels have about 30 Bibles, 30 parables. John, the Gospel of John, has zero parables. Parables were very popular among Eastern nations then, especially among the Jews, which makes it kind of ironic, in my opinion, that Jews couldn't figure out Jesus' parables. That's because they were so mule-headed, so hard-hearted, so sinful, so disgusting. All right, now the parable of the sower, which we're getting ready to listen to a discussion of in, in the Matthew audio, the parable of the sower is one of three parables that is recorded in all three synoptic gospels. The other parable that's so recorded is the, are the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the vineyard. And as I said earlier, this is one of the eight parables John Gill says, Jameson, Fawcett, Brown, NIV, study Bible say seven parables, and I can't figure out why. I tried to count them. I think I came up with seven, but it depends on how you divide them up. Seven or eight parables that were given from the boat outside of Capernaum there. This is one of them. Now, Luke is not going to hit them all. He's not going to describe them all. Matthew and Mark are going to do a lot of them. So we're only going to do the ones that Luke has done, and the sower is the first one. So right now, I am going to splice in the audio on Matthew 13, and we'll take Matthew 13 all the way down to Matthew 13:23, and listen to a discussion of the parable of the sower. That splice starts now. This audio will 
begin Matthew chapter 13. We'll take up the first 23 verses and discuss the parable of the sower of the, of the seed. Matthew 13:1 says this, The same day went Jesus out of his house and sat by the seaside. Now the house that he was leaving was probably that same house in Capernaum, Peter's house, Peter and Andrew's house, where Jesus based his ministry operations. This is the same house where he was teaching in the last chapter when his mothers and brothers thought he was nuts, or it was around that house in, in, near Capernaum. Now, why did he go? Why did he leave the house? Well, he could have been going to talk with his mother and his brothers. Remember, they had come up from Nazareth to, because they thought he was out of his mind. Or it could have been he was just trying to leave to take a break and relax. As Adam Clark points out, Jesus scarcely ever appears to take any rest. Maybe he was going to go by the seaside to take some rest. But I think the real answer is that he was looking for a more convenient place to teach because the same house didn't hold enough people, and he was out there doing his work again, teaching as he usually did. Now, this same day that Jesus went out of the house, this is what happened on that day in the previous chapters. John Gill points this out. Jesus had cast a demon out of a deaf, dumb, and blind man. He had defeated the Pharisees' argument that he was exercising demons by the power of Satan. And his mother and brother had come to get him because they thought he was nuts. So a lot happened that day. He wasn't finished, though. He goes down by the seaside, the Sea of Galilee. He sits, which is the normal position for a Jewish teacher, and he begins teaching. Chapter 13 in Matthew, verse 2. And great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood, by the sh stood on the shore. I don't believe this is the same situation where he was sat in Peter's boat in Luke, chapter 5. This is probably another situation, I think. He went into a ship or a boat and sat, because sitting was the typical position position that a Jewish rabbi took, and the whole multitude stood on the shore, and of course his voice could bounce off the sea like a sounding board into the crowds, and so he could teach a bunch of people. Why were the multitudes coming to see him? Well, they came to see him because he had become famous, perhaps, to see miracles, to receive miracles, to hear his teaching, and again, it's not just for the miracles. They came for hearing the teachers, too, because Luke chapter 5 clearly says that the crowds came to hear and to be healed. Nothing wrong with coming to get healed. There's nothing wrong with coming to hear. I say this because so many narrow-minded cessationists say that, see there, the people were coming for healing. They weren't interested in his teaching. That's not so. They were interested in his teaching as well as his healing. And, and if they were just interested in his healing, if you were sick with, and dumb and deaf and blind and lame, maybe you'd be interested in healing too. But at any rate, he got in the boat so he wouldn't be so crowded so people could see and hear him better. This was probably kept on the lake by the apostles, this boat, by the apostles for theirs and Jesus' use, says Adam Clark, because some of the apostles were fishermen, as we know. Some may have fished occasionally during their ministry with Jesus. Mark 3, 9 mentions this boat. Then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, so the crowd would not crush him. Matthew 13, verses 3 through 4. And he spoke many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow, and when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. The birds came and devoured them up. Of course, back then, sowing was done by grabbing a handful of seed and scattering it, broadcasting it, if you will. And if you would do that, it was inevitable that some seed would miss the good ground and land on the, the hard road by the side of the field and not grow. Now let's talk about parables in general. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have about 30 of them, and John has zero, which is kind of an interesting statistic. I don't know if it, what it signifies, but it is interesting. These parables that we're going to look look at in this chapter, including the parable of the sower, are explained by Jesus in the latter part of the chapter. So this is this is easy because Jesus gives us the own his own interpretation of the parable. Why are parables effective? They're easy to remember. They use familiar scenes in every in the everyday life of the people. They clarified Jesus's teaching. They included hidden meanings, which encouraged seekers to seek for more meaning and which kept hard-hearted, nasty people who had bad motives from learning more because those hidden meanings were hidden from them, these truths that Jesus wanted to conceal from unbelievers. And this, of course, kept Jesus' enemies from finding direct statements which they could use against Jesus. Jesus could, could just say, if he got dragged before a tribute, only he could say, hey, I was just teaching a parable. What did I say? Where did I say that I was going to overthrow the Jewish kingdom in Jerusalem and so forth? Now, there were seven, at least seven or eight, John Gill has eight parables, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, the NIV study Bible, say there are only seven parables listed in this chapter, 
and I'm not sure why perhaps uh, they collapsed two of the parables into one, but let me list the eight that Gil mentions here, the parable of the sower, which we'll take up in this audio, and then later on the parable of the wheat and tares, number two, number three, the parable of the grain of mustard seed, number four, the parable of the leaven and three measures of meal, number five, the parable of a treasure hid in a field, the parable of the pearl of great price is number six, number seven, the parable of the dragnet, the net cast into the sea, and parable Number eight, the parable of the householder. Now, these parables, this form of teaching in parables was very popular among Eastern nations then, especially amongst the Jews, which makes it extremely ironic that the Jews couldn't figure out what Jesus' parables meant. They were so hard-hearted. Well, this first parable, the parable of the seed, where some seeds came by the wayside and the birds ate them up, the seeds of the gospel, the sower was Jesus or Jesus' disciples, and the wayside was the paths that people walk on through the grain fields so they can work, and these paths become hardened as people walk on them, and so it's very easy for fowls to eat the seeds up when the when the seed falls on the on the hard pathways because the seeds can't cannot take root. They just sit on the top. The birds come and eat them. And what does the wayside symbolize? The hard path. It symbolizes the hardness of the Pharisee's heart. And what do the fowls symbolize? The birds, they symbolize the devil. We can see that by looking at the parallel passages in Luke 8, 12. Those by the wayside are they that hear. Then come, comes the devil and takes away the word out of their hearts. Mark 4, 15 says, But when they have heard, Satan comes immediately and takes the word that was sown in their hearts. So this parable is very easy to understand. Now let's go to Matthew chapter 13, verses 5 through 6. Some, meaning some seed, fell upon stony places where they had not much earth. So this is the second place the seed fell, the first place being on the work paths, the walkways through the fields. Now now we're discussing where seed fell upon ground that was, had shallow earth on top and stone, a, a layer of bedrock, if you will, a stony layer under a shallow layer of dirt. So some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth, and when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Now what happens is, well, you could say that the stony ground was ground covered with small stones, but the NIV Study Bible and Adam Clark say it's shallow soil was on top of solid rock, so that when the roots started going downward into the soil, they hit rock, and they, and they couldn't go any further, and so the plants didn't have deep roots. And so they, as soon as they grew up, the sun wiped them out and they weren't able to suck water out of the earth. And so they dried up and withered away. So what does that stand for? Well, it stands for persecution. As we drop down into verse 21, which we'll get to at the end of this audio, Jesus explains this parable. He says, this person has no root in himself, but endureth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by he is offended. John Gibble puts it this way. A sudden and hasty profession of the word was made without a powerful experience of it. In other words, these people said, oh, the kingdom of God, woo, healing, wonderful stuff, messianic kingdom, no more Romans, I want to follow Jesus. And they didn't realize the persecution that was coming. And so they just ran like rabbits when the persecution came, which is symbolized by the withering away of these of these plants, people who hadn't counted the cost. Now, some people, of course, like to say that this means that they were they were believers, and then as soon as things got tough, they ran, therefore lost their salvation. This is not what this verse is teaching. For one reason, for one thing, this was before the church was started, before people even knew what it meant to be born again, and before they were born again, regeneration and all that kind of stuff, that was after the church, after Pentecost. Uh, this was following Jesus beforehand, so it had nothing to do with that. It means, are you going to follow Jesus or not at that time? So, and besides, there's nothing here that says that they were saved. Again, it just means they heard the word. They say, hey, that's great. But they didn't actually follow Jesus. They didn't believe Jesus in their heart. Matthew 13, verse 7 says this. And some fell among thorns. All right, so this is the third place the seed fell. The first place was in the hard pathways. The devil came and plucked them up, just like the birds came and plucked up the seeds off the hard pathways. The devil came and plucked out the word because uh, because of the hard heart, the hardness of the Pharisees. That's place number one. Place number two is in shallow soil with stony bedrock so that there was no deep root. So the persecution got those. The sun withered them up, which is which is the persecution getting those believers. And this is the third place. Some fell among thorns. And the thorns sprung up and choked them. The thorns are sinful lust. Matthew 13, verse 22. He also, this is where Jesus explains the parable. 
This is nice, and Jesus explains the parable to us. He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word, and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. We'll talk about the deceitful richness when I get down to verse 22. Just to, just to explain the parable, some people decide they want to make money instead of following the gospel. How, how many times have we heard that? Matthew 13, 8. Now, I, I should say there were three places, three places where the seed fell that were bad. Now we go to the fourth place, which is good ground. Matthew 13, 8. But other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. This good ground says Gill and Clark is broken up, manured, tilled. The earth was deep and the weeds all removed, as any good farmer can tell you. It symbolizes good, honest-hearted hearers, according to John Gill. In other words, people who are sincere about following Jesus. Now, of these sincere followers of Jesus, there's a distinction between the 30-fold, the 60-fold, and the 100-fold Christians here. Well, what does that mean? It can mean the maturity, you get a distinction based on maturity. You got young kids, 30-fold, little children, young men, 60-fold, and fathers, 100-fold. That's John Gill's idea. Or it could be that uh, it's fruit. Some people, some Christians grow more fruit than others, 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. In fact, it actually says this in Matthew 13. says, other seeds fell into good ground and brought forth fruit. So it says fruit, and we understand fruit to be the the product of the Holy Spirit. And I think that matches with our experience. We know Christians that really go on with the Lord, and some that just kind of play around with it. Some they're all believers, but they're they're not as all they're not as discipled. They're not as mature disciples. They're not as productive. Matthew thirteen nine. Who hath ears to hear? Let him hear. Now, of course, this is a standard phrase that was used back then. Everybody's got ears to hear, but it means you got ears to hear and understand. Then hear and understand. If one is not inclined to listen to the truth with appreciation, he will not hear. Now, this phrase is used by Jesus to pique the listener's interest, and this indeed happened to the disciples, because we get down, if we look at the parallel passages in Mark 4:10, and when he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked of him the parable. They want to know, what does this mean, Jesus? And his disciples asked him in Luke 8, verse 9, what might this parable be? They're curious. He has ears to hear. Let him hear. See, these parables just draw you in. To want, you want to know more and more and more about the secrets of the kingdom. Matthew 13, verses 10 through 11. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. It is, it is given to you to know, but to them, the Pharisees, it's not given. Well, why was that? Did God love the disciples more than he loved the Pharisees? No, of course not. It's because the disciples had hearts wanted to hear. They wanted to follow. They wanted to learn. They gave up the fish, their nets, their businesses, and they followed Jesus, and they underwent persecution. The Pharisees, on the other hand, went around trying to kill the disciples and kill Jesus, and that's why they weren't given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. It wasn't that Jesus was being arbitrary or being unkind or anything. He was giving them exactly what they deserved. He was being just. It says the disciples, it was given to the disciples to know, the disciples could be the 12 apostles, or it could be the 12 apostles plus others, and I think that's what John Gill and NIV Study Bible say that, and I think he was talking about more disciples than just the 12. Now, the disciples asked him, why do you talk in parables? It wasn't that the disciples were surprised at the, at the form of the teaching. They weren't surprised at the fact that Jesus was using parables. That was very common among the Jews. What they were surprised at is that why was Jesus trying to hide his meaning from the people? Why didn't he just come out and tell them? Well, of course, Jesus had a reason. To fa the reason he didn't come out and tell them, he wanted to veil the judgment. He wanted to uh, lessen the judgment on the hard-hearted people because if they, if he told them straight out and they rejected, it's, it's you get that much closer to blaspheming the Holy Spirit if you reject the Messiah. He didn't want to do that, but he also didn't want to give evidence that could be used against him uh, so that he could get killed prematurely by coming out and and saying that the uh, Pharisees had hard hearts and the and so forth. Now, what were these mysteries that were vouchsafed to the followers of Jesus, these mysteries that the parables were revealing? Well, Adam Clark says it's things concerning the scheme of salvation that were not yet revealed yet. 
prophetic declarations concerning the future of the Christian church. And he said you can look at the ensuing parables, these parables that were given in the boat that we're going to talk about in later audios. Then you look at these parables and you see the, the you see what's going to happen in the kingdom of God in the Christian church. The NIV Study Bible says the secrets, the mysteries, was that the kingdom of God had come near in the coming of Jesus. All saying the same thing. It's basically the, the secrets of the kingdom. And it's it's interesting that Jesus decided to let these simple people, these fishermen, know the, the secrets of the kingdom, but he decided not to give it to the big shots, the religious authorities, the know-it-alls, the arrogant SOBs that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were. Again, it's all about the heart. It's all about the heart. That's what determines how much you know and how much you, you will be, how much spiritual knowledge you will be given. Matthew verse chapter 13, verse 12. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. Now, this is referring to a common custom in all countries, is that presents are given to rich people. People go to the to the kings, and they bring a present with them, especially in the East. Even, uh, even today, uh, the American government has a policy that if a foreign potentate gives a present to the president of the United States, if it's over a certain value, the president has to give it to the government because rich and powerful people love to give presents to one another. That's just what they do. So he's saying, look, you're, you're going to be rich because I'm giving you all these secrets of the kingdom, and then I'm going to give you even more. <laughs> just like these rich kings get presents when they don't really need any more, but they get more. Well, you're going to get more spiritual knowledge. You've got spiritual knowledge, and I'm going to give you some more which is very encouraging to those who are trying to grow in the Lord. And then he says, from him shall be taken away even that he hath. That's referring to the fact that poor people often get robbed because they're poor and they're weak. They're either taken care uh, because the courts don't look after them or because uh, other, other people rob them. Or for whatever reason, they lose whatever they have. And so he's likening the Pharisees to poor people who don't have anything, and God's going to take away even that. Of course, the Pharisees had all the secrets of all the spiritual oracles that had been given to the Old Testament Jews that were taken away. They had all the spiritual advantages, as Paul tells us in the book of Romans, and they threw them away. And it was taken away from them because as all the parables and many, many parables say about Jesus taking away the kingdom and giving it to the nation that's worthy of the fruits thereof and so forth. And so Jesus is just predicting the coming doom on the nation of Israel. Matthew 13, verse 13. Therefore speak I that to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. So Jesus is veiling his teaching in parables so that the spiritually dull will not understand, according to the NIV study Bible. But now I'm saying this. Jesus was not being arbitrary by doing this. The Pharisees brought it on themselves. And notice that Jesus didn't speak in parables until his miracles were attributed to Satan. And that, then the parable started, because it was clear that the Pharisees were not deserving of spiritual truth, and so therefore they didn't get it. But the people who were following Jesus, all they had to do was understand those parables, and they would receive the rich treasures of the kingdom. One has got to want to understand before one can understand. Matthew chapter 13, verses 14 through 15. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, By hearing you shall hear, and shall not understand. And seeing you shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, which is King James English for become callous, as the NIV has it. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. This is a pretty much a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, which I won't read. When was it fulfilled? Well, it was fulfilled when Isaiah gave it. The people were dull of hearings and couldn't see, couldn't hear, hardened, calloused hearts. It was fulfilled after Isaiah in the time of the later prophets. Isaiah was 8th century B.C., the later prophets up to 5th century B.C., so all during that time they were hard-hearted and dull of hearing, and it was fulfilled right here under the ministry of Christ uh, as uh, because Matthew, because Jesus is talking right here in Matthew 13, says these people are hard-hearted. And this is also mentioned in John chapter 12, by the way, he, which says this, He hath blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, so that, you, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spoke of him, spoke of Christ. Afterwards, when the church got started, the same thing was happening. The people were dull of hearing, blind with their eyes. Acts chapter 28, verses 26 through 27, this is when Jesus 
tried to convert the Jews in Rome when he was there under house arrest. And he quotes Isaiah, he says, saying, Go unto this people and say, Hearing you shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing you shall see and not perceive, for the heart of this people is wax gross. So you see, he quoted, the, quoted Isaiah again in Acts chapter 28, the same passage. Romans 11:8, Paul says this concerning the Jews, according as it is written, God has given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And again, that's not God's fault. That's punishment for their stupidity and their blindness. And God was not arbitrary in giving them that spirit of slumber. So this is a very oft-quoted verse in the New Testament, and it was characteristic to the Jews, and in fact, it's characteristic to the Jews overall to this day. We can only pray that one day their eyes will be opened, they will see their Messiah, and will come to love him, as many Messianic Jews are doing today. All right, let's go to Matthew. Oh, notice this hearing and seeing. They did hear, but only they heard the physical. They heard the natural. They didn't didn't hear and understand. And they saw Jesus, but they didn't see and understand who he was. Matthew 13 16, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. And they hear Jesus means your eyes see, and they understand, and your ears hear, and they understand. So it's a different sense. Pharisees saw, but they didn't understand. The disciples see, but they do understand. And the Pharisees hear, but they don't understand. But the disciples hear, and they do understand. Matthew 13, verse 17. For truly I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which you see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which you hear, and have not heard them. Now, this promise, this statement of Jesus is also stated in Luke chapter 10, verse 24, where Jesus said, For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see these things. Matthew here in verse 17 says, Many prophets and righteous men. How do we reconcile? Well, the kings could, there were some kings that were righteous men. Several of the Old Testament, Old Testament saints, righteous men, were kings. That's one way, or you could say it's not the same occasion. That's a harmonization problem, which is always very difficult, and a lot of times controversial and not clear. I, I, you could also just say that he, he said that many prophets and righteous men, the righteous men were prophets that he was talking about. In other words, he's just using two adjectives, to or, or excuse me, he's using two nouns to describe one group of people. For example, I could say that football team over there and those muscular men. That football team over there and, that, and those muscular men have decided to go on strike. I'm referring to the same group of people, so it could be that. that. But at any rate, it doesn't matter. The point is, is that in the Old Testament, there were people who longed for the kingdom, and they wanted to see the things that these humble fishermen were getting to see, and these humble people, these disciples of Jesus, were getting to see. They were getting to see the Messiah in the flesh and getting taught about the church, the kingdom, the coming kingdom. And the prophets and the righteous men in the past, they could just look into the future, look at those prophecies and search them and wonder what they were referring to and hope and believe, but not really know what was coming. So, yeah, those people were blessed. In fact, I've often thought, gosh, I would have loved to have been back there and heard Jesus teach personally in the flesh. I would have loved it. <laughs> Let's look at some scriptures that show this desiring of saints in the Old Testament, this longing for Jesus, longing for the kingdom. John chapter 8, verse 56 Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Abraham saw it because he believed, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. He knew the day was coming, the messianic kingdom was coming. But he had to believe and see it in faith, because he, could, had, to, he had to believe it in faith, because he couldn't see it in the flesh. Genesis 49:18. I, referring to Jacob, I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. And wait means to look forward with confident expectation. I'm looking forward to your salvation, O Lord. That was Jacob. He never got to see it in the flesh like these people did. Psalm 14, verse 7. Oh, that the salvation of Israel will come out of Zion when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people. Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. This is probably David writing according to John Gill, writing this psalm in Psalm 14, verse 7. Oh, that the salvation of Israel will come out of Zion. Zion, of course, is the typical symbol of the kingdom of heaven, which we know it to be now. And, and David is looking... He's looking for when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, when the people will be free and the kingdom will be here and Israel will be glad. Isaiah 25, 9, and it shall be in that day, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord we have waited for him. We'll be glad and rejoice in his salvation. It seems that the Old Testament Jews were constantly aware that they were not really free yet. They were not really saved yet and they needed that kingdom to come to get them to save. 
to get to get them saved. Matthew 13, verses 18 through 19. Hear you, therefore, the parable of the sword. Now, Jesus is going to explain the parable. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and understands it not, then comes the wicked one and catches away that which was sown in his heart. This is which is he which received seed by the wayside. So the seed by the wayside, the hardness is hard because um, the, the, the path was hard. And the wicked one is the birds of the air that took it away, which was sown in his heart. Now, Jesus here just volunteers to explain the parables. We know from the parallel passages that the disciples asked that the parables be explained to them. Mark chapter 4, verse 10 says this, And when he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked of him the parable. What does this mean? Luke chapter 8, verse 9, And his disciples asked him, saying, What might this parable be? Mark adds an interesting detail. He's the detail man in Mark chapter 4, verse 13. And he said to them, Know you not this parable? How then will you know all parables? In other words, it sounds like Jesus was saying, Look, this is an easy one, guys. You don't even understand that. Jesus was always kind of chastising his parables for being a little slow. You know, you don't believe me? What's the matter with you? You can't walk on water? You think it's hard to walk on water? Where's your faith? He was always talking like that. I've always been amazed because I don't think I could live up to his expectations. But Jesus was very patient with his disciples. Now, don't get me wrong. But on the other hand, he was constantly calling them up higher and higher and higher as a good teacher will do but he knew that there were more difficult parables coming later now again the idea is what does this mean that somebody lost their salvation when the bird came and took the seed out of his heart does it mean the devil caused him to lose his salvation no it does not nowhere does this parable say this this person was a believer when it says the devil of the wicked one came and caught away the seed it just means that before the seed took root in the heart the devil got it doesn't mean you lost your salvation. I'm going to tell you why I believe that when we get to the good seed in a minute. Why these, the three bad places where the seeds fell refer to people who decided, who acted like they were going to follow Jesus but didn't actually follow him. But then the good seed is when the, the seed actually takes root and the people actually get saved. So let's now look at verses 20 and 21 in Matthew chapter 13. But he that receiveth the seed into stony places, the same is he that heareth the word and at once with joy receives it, yet he does not have root in himself, but endureth for a while, for when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by he is offended. So the question is, oh, this, so people might say, oh, this means he received the word, that means he became a believer. I don't believe so. Uh, those who receive this, who receive in this way are not believe, believers. Here's what John Gill says. The natural hardness of his heart continues. It remains unbroken by the word without any true sense of sin and repentance for it and destitute of spiritual life and of true faith, love, and joy. Hence, as his profession is taken up in haste, immediately upon a flash of affection and a little head knowledge, it does not last long nor prove honorable. When people try to put New Testament categories on this to try to say whether well, this person believer or not believer i always think well this is before the church this is before the holy spirit came this is just talking about people who want to follow jesus now i believe we can apply it to the church but i surely don't think we can say that this is referring to people losing their salvation because i don't think they had salvation to lose back then but not in our sense of the word now this idea of persecution is important because Jesus told the disciples when he sent the 12 apostles out to, on their first missionary journey, he told them they were going to be persecuted like crazy. And let's look at some of these scriptures on persecution because this is important. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. Summoning the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to be my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his life? What can a man give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And again, I think Jesus is talking about being ashamed in the, in the course of persecution if somebody denies him when they're being persecuted. Mark chapter 10, verse 30, Who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time? Houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields. I'm talking about giving up stuff and Jesus giving it back. But also, sisters, mothers, children, fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. So we've got good times, we've got bad times, we've got eternal life. But you are going to get persecuted. Mark, chapter, Mark 13, verses 9 through 13, But you be on your guard. They will hand you over to Sanhedrin's, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. The synagogues had these little courts there, and that's where they, they would flog you in the court there in the synagogue. You will stand before governors and kings. That's probably Roman governors and kings because of me and as a witness to them. And the good news must be first be proclaimed to all nations. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say. On the contrary, whatever is given to you in that hour, say it. For it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. 
Then brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and put them to death, and you will be hated by everyone because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be delivered. Well, see, Jesus was not just talking about ordinary, everyday persecution. He was talking about severe persecution, and he was saying, hey, when persecution comes, people are going to say, I, I don't want this. I'm out of here. They are not in the kingdom because Jesus said, I'm going to deny you before the Father if you do that, if you are ashamed of me in the midst of this persecution. What an incredible call. That's It's just amazing to me how Jesus would get people to follow him with the requirements being that high. But he did. Matthew verse thir- chapter 13, verse 22. He also that received seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. This is the third bad place for the seed to fall where thorns choke out the fruit. The synoptic passages, Mark adds, and the lust of other things. Matthew has the deceitfulness of riches. Mark adds the lust of other things. And Luke adds the pleasures of this life. We all know what that is. Prosperity tends to give a false sense of self-sufficiency, security, and well-being, says my NIV study Bible, as of course it does. Let's look at some scriptures on this. We have the story of the rich young ruler, Matthew 10, verses 17 through 25, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good but one, God. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to them, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Then looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. He was stunned at this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions he didn't want to follow. And then Jesus turned and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the point is, if if you love riches more than you love the kingdom, you might receive the gospel and say, Boy, this thing sounds wonderful to be a Christian. And Jesus finds the one thing you're not willing to give up. and says, Well, okay, be my disciple, but you've got to give this up. Give this up. And then all of a sudden, you don't want to be his disciple anymore. It doesn't have to be riches either. It doesn't have to be riches. It could be the love of a girl or the love of a man or, or whatever. Honor, place, society. Let's see what the Bible says in Deuteronomy 8 about riches. Deuteronomy 8, verses 17 through 18. You may say to yourself, my power and my own ability have gained this wealth for me. But remember that the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth. In other words, and this is what rich people do. They think, I did this. I made all this money. I'm a big shot. Listen, and if any Israelite would say that, God says, no, you got to remember, I gave you the power to get that wealth. You didn't do it. Deuteronomy 32, verse 15, then Jeshurun, Israel, became fat and rebelled. You became fat, bloated, and gorged. He abandoned the God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. So there's the the love of money is the root of all evil. Ecclesiastes 2, verses 4 through 11. This is King Solomon. I increased my achievements. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself and planted every kind of fruit tree in them. I constructed reservoirs of water for myself from which to irrigate a grove of flourishing trees. I acquired male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I also owned many herds of cattle and flocks, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I also amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I gathered male and female singers for myself and many concubines, the delights of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained with me. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure, for I took pleasure in all my struggles. This was my reward for all my struggles. When I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is one of my favorite passages in Ecclesiastes. You want to get rich? Well, Solomon was rich, and he was rich big time, and it was all like chasing after the wind. It was all his vanity, all his vanity, all his foolishness. Would you rather have that, or would you rather follow Jesus? James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich people. Weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth is ruined and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your silver and gold are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. 
You stored up treasure in the last days. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who reaped your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously on the land and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the righteous man. He does not resist you. So, we see. This is just all a lot of scriptures about the love of money is all of root of all evil. Or this Jesus puts it here in Matthew 13. The deceitfulness of riches will choke the word out and you will become unfruitful. And if this did refer to a believer, which I don't believe it does, but if it did, it doesn't say he loses his salvation. It just says he becomes unfruitful. And that's not the main point. The main point is, is don't let the love of money get in the way of your discipleship of Jesus. One more point before I leave this is all of these things about riches. It never says that riches are bad. It's if unjust riches, for example, in James 5, is people are not paying their salaries, not not meeting their payroll, cheating people. They work and they don't get paid. Well, that's not just being rich. That's being rich and crooked. We've got to be careful. All, not all rich people are evil, just like not all poor people are virtuous. People make these blanket, categorical, stereotypical judgments without thinking, and, and we ought not to do that. All right, let's then go to Matthew 23, and we'll finish it up. Jesus says this, But he that received seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word, and understands it, which also bears fruit. The word also bears fruit and bringeth forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. All right, now, the fact that Jesus here says the, those that receive seed on the good ground are and understand it, because they understand the word, they receive the seed and understand the word, that means they're saved. So Jesus is contrasting people who are saved here compared to people who have the who have the, the word taken out of their hearts because of the hardness of their hearts, who, because of persecution, have shallow roots and don't uh, hang in there in the kingdom. They're not saved. They never decide to become believers. And those who decide to follow the riches rather than the gospel, those people weren't ever saved. But these people here that understand the word, they are saved. The synoptic gospels had this, understand it and receive it. And Luke says, understand it and keeps it. This is showing, this is referring to believers. Bearing fruit is one of the three grand evidences of a genuine believer, says Adam Clark. To hear the word, to understand the word, and bring forth fruit. Now notice that the difference in the fruit that these Christians grew, or these followers of Christ grew, it was not due to the kind of seed that was sown. It was all good seed. It was the word of God. It had nothing to do with how skillful the sower was. Did the sower aim the seed at the proper place? No. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do... The difference between the 30, 60, and 100-fold was due to the responsiveness of the believer. How is the believer going to react when he hears the gospel call? When he hears Jesus calling him, is he going to play around with the gospel? Is he going to go halfway? Is he going to get distracted? Is he going to get afraid? Is he going to be frightened? Or is he going to give all of his heart to Jesus and follow Jesus and thus inherit eternal life? Houses, lands, mothers, brothers, sisters, yes, there'll be some persecutions and eternal life choices up to the hearer of the word. That's it for this Matthew 13 verses 1 through 23 parable of the sword of the sea. All right, I'm back from my splice of the audio of Matthew 13, and now I'm back in Luke 8. We have managed to go down to Luke chapter 8 verse 18. As a heads up, the next audio, we will take up this incident where Jesus' family thought he was nuts and tried to get him to leave his ministry and go back down to Nazareth. That'll be in Luke 8, 19 through 21. And then after that, we're going to look at Luke, excuse me, look at Jesus stilling the storm on the Sea of Galilee. That will be Luke 8, verses 22 through 25. I hope you enjoy this audio, and we'll see you at the next one.